Hello and welcome to the Old Paths podcast. I'm Michael Spangler. I'm a minister of the gospel in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm joined again by my brothers, uh, Cody Justice and Benjamin Hicks. Good evening, men. Good evening, brother. Great to be here. Good evening, brothers. Looking forward to it. Now, Benjamin, looks like you're on your way somewhere. That is correct. Uh, so presently, uh, I've been invited to do some pulpit supply for some congregations in Arkansas. So uh, I believe we're about to cross the border to Indiana at this point. So we've got a few miles ahead of us, but uh, thankful to be joining you while my uh, wonderful wife uh, steers our vehicle in a most wonderful way. So we're thankful. Oh, good. And thank you for serving our fellow Americans with the gospel. May the Lord bless. Good. Well, tonight our topic is gluttony. And we chose it because it is a urgent and pressing issue. I doubt there's anyone listening who would disagree with that, that this is a topic that's important and that needs to be addressed. And we'll talk more about that importance but let's begin with the word of God, which has a number of things to say about the sin of gluttony. A passage I'd like to read is Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3. Proverbs 23, 1 to 3. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat. If thou be a man given to appetite, be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. So if you hear a little baby in the background, please excuse. But when thou sittest to you with a ruler, notice the setting. You have an important man looking on. A ruler. His opinion of you matters, even for your life. And verse two says, it is better to put a knife to your own throat to threaten your own life than to show that you are a man given to appetite. This phrase, a man given to appetite, is I find the simplest summary in the Bible of gluttony, though we'll read of other summaries. Gluttony is not just a love for food. It's certainly not a mere love for food that can be lawful and good. And it's not um, just an excess in eating, but it is a love for food that is excessive. It's, a, it's not the having of appetite, but it's the get, being given to appetite. We might say addicted, addicted to food. And that's why it goes on in verse three and says, be not desirous. Don't be filled with excess desire for the king's dainties. They're deceitful meat. They'll deceive you and they'll cause you trouble. And we could talk at length about what the trouble is here, but this passage is useful for us to introduce the topic and there'll be much more to say. Do your brothers have any comments on it before we move on to some other things. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, not to, don't want to derail us, but certainly when I think about gluttony, especially in our context today where we have access to a lot of different foods, foods that taste very good, um, I often find, at least in my mind, that it's associated with a love of ease and of pleasure. Uh, as well. That's just a, something that immediately comes to mind when I when I think about this. And certainly even in my own life, you know, I enjoy good tasting food. And at times it can even be comforting. Um, but certainly, as you've already alluded to, when it's something that you're given to, it's your master. Um, that's where it's crossed over into sin. Yeah, so do you think it's good that food is comforting to us? Ought we seek comfort from food? Seek uh, ultimate comfort? No. I think that the Lord says he's given us all things richly to enjoy. 
so yeah i'm i suppose i'm i'm hesitant to say we should seek comfort there uh, but i could understand if someone would go there and it gives them it would give them a pleasure uh, maybe that would be a better way a better way to put it do you think we have to be ashamed in itself of taking pleasure in food an inordinate pleasure yeah so maybe if we have these if we have these distinctions that would that would help yeah so an inordinate pleasure yes an ordinate pleasure no obviously not uh, the lord's made it is to be received with thanks and and delighted in uh, the lord gives man wine for example so yes i think you're getting at something good benjamin i love your thoughts yeah this. thank thank you brother i think this is a hugely important topic and um i think that the thing that immediately strikes me about this text is that this is something that is as serious as death and so whenever a sin like this would be made light of and we need to hear this language of it being preferable to put a knife to your own throat so the image here i suppose is you take the knife uh, off the table that you're about to gorge yourself with and it'd be better to put it to your own throat it, it reminds me of what the lord jesus says in matthew 5 where if thy right hand offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee for it is profitable for thee to lose one of thy members than for thy whole body be cast into hell so i think this is a a, a deadly sin uh, like any other sin it is worthy of of eternal death and so it needs to be reckoned with i do think that um it it is very clear to me that what we're looking at is a sinful desire and not a lawful desire i think when you go to the uh creation account in the early chapters of genesis in genesis chapter 2 verse 9 uh, we read there and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And I think there you have a principle that God gave us taste and gave us appetite and gave us uh, foods to uh, enjoy. Um, and uh, it was not in the lawful use of that that there was any problem, but of course in the unlawful use of it, of course, the original uh, sin of uh, of Eve was that she desired that food which God had prohibited, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think even the, the fact that is the archetypal sin, we, we could say, is something that deserves some some uh, meditation, I think. But certainly we ought, we ought to shy away from what the apostle refers to as the doctrine of devils in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, there, one of the things that the doctrines of devils is described is as the abstaining of meats. And then in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, For every creature or creation of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in a prayer. So I think that uh, if you read that chapter, it, it says that the lawful use of food is good and to be celebrated. And, uh, and to just shun pleasure in food for its own sake is an excessive, uh, sinful, and perhaps as we'll get into an idolatrous love of food, which is really the problem. Yeah, this is good. So I think we've seen that's clearly in the passage. I appreciate you bringing out how serious this is. And We've already touched on some important biblical principles and other places like First Timothy 4 that clarify this. So thank you. I think we've already come to the definition of gluttony, which is where I hope to go next. It's an immoderate love for food. It's a love for food that's beyond the bounds that that love should have. And I think it might help to clarify and gather some things we've already said. Love can be a moderate if it's not ordered unto the chief love, which of course should be a love for God. So a great statement as it relates to food is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory 
of God. So God comes first. And therefore we can say that gluttony is first and foremost a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And a powerful testimony to that is in Philippians 3, where Paul is mourning unbelievers and their lost condition. He says in verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, excuse me, I was looking at um, chapter two, but that's an excellent passage as well. But in chapter three in verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So clearly this isn't just about food, but he singles out the belly as the God of the enemies of Christ. Do you have anything, Benjamin, to follow up on with that? Yeah, so that's, that's certainly a very important text, Michael, and, and one that gives us great soberness because we see that that, that um, informs so much of those false teachers, right? They are described, their whole conduct is as enemies of cross of Christ, but at bottom, it's their gratification of that desire which takes the place of God. I think another text that would support is the general principle of when we're talking about the first commandment would be found uh, in Second Timothy. Now, in Second, let me just bring that up for a moment. Yeah, in Second Timothy chapter three. Uh, verse 4 describes lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, which I think encapsulates more than just gluttony, but the idea is this disordered desire. I think that um, Heidelberg Catechism, I think, has a really good summary in question 494. What does God enjoin in the first commandment? And there, part of the answer is that I write, that I learn rightly to know the only true God trust in him alone with humility and patience, submit to him, expect all good things from him only, love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than to commit the least thing contrary to his will. And then they ask, the question is, what is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or beside that one true God who has manifested himself in his word, to contrive or have any other object in which man placed their trust. Mm. And um, I think that where we would see a lot of uh, people today, one of the things that they should be asking themselves is that when they feel stress or alienation or uh, anxiety, um, are they seeking their comfort primarily from God, trusting in him, or are they looking to some of these other things? I think a lot of lonely people turn to the, the vileness of pornography. People turn to other things in order to not feel out of, out of place. And I think sometimes food can, can take that place as well, an addiction to food that's ungodly. I just wanted to mention one other text, Michael. And uh, in addition to the one you mentioned, it was interesting to me that in the Old Covenant, one of the proto uh, one of the most clear examples of an ungodly person in the, the law of Moses is the rebellious uh, son in Deuteronomy 21. And uh, this is the, the case of someone who is rebellious to his parents and then is brought out and executed for his rebellion. And I just wanted to, to read as well how that is described there in Deuteronomy 21, verse 20. And they say unto the elders of this city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of this city shall 
stone him with stones that he died. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And it does seem to me that there you get a clear indication that the sin of gluttony is also connected with other sins and uh, often seems to feed them. In this case, perhaps it was that his uh, love of food led him to steal from his parents or to otherwise be a drain upon people in a, in a wasteful and a selfish fashion. But I think that uh, one of the things that, that we see with sins is that they're often related to more fundamental, deep-seated problems. And ultimately, they relate to our relationship with God. Mm. Thank you for that, Benjamin. Thank you. That's very useful. Um, I want to say something else, and then Cody, I like your opinion on it. I think the other side is that the question of moderation in our love for food is not only a question of love for God coming first, though that is the main question. Because when we fail to love God rightly, that love is disordered. All the lesser loves become disordered as well. And even regarding food itself, things become disordered. So we talk, for example, about the comfort of food. I don't think most reasonable people would deny that food does bring comfort. So the Bible itself recognizes some of the various benefits of food. Um, Psalm 104, verse 15. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man. And oil to make his face shine. And bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The heart could be a way to speak of the body, but our bodies and souls are so closely connected. We all know the comfort of a good meal, and it's not just that it makes us physically healthy. But there are other uses of food. Food is for nutrition. It's for building us up and making us strong and able to do our tasks. Food is also a sort of medicine, and those two things can't be separated in this age when our bodies are always being broken down by the consequences of sin. We need the medicine of food to make us healthy. So this is an issue of the sixth commandment in that respect. Food is a matter of life and death. What you eat can make you healthy or can kill you. It's also a matter of the seventh commandment because as we've already said, it's a question of pleasure and the pleasure of food and of sexuality are often they often go together but the man who lives for any sort of pleasure first or any pleasures beyond their bounds is by that breaking the seventh commandment and so i would venture to say with food though it is pleasurable if we separate that pleasure from the other uses of food then we've got a problem that's immoderate. If food is only for pleasure, and the illustration to my mind that is most helpful is imagine you had a test tube of hamburger essence and you just drank it because you enjoyed the taste of a hamburger, but it had none of the nutrition of a hamburger, none of the medicinal value, none of the social benefit, none of the other benefits of food. It was only the taste of the hamburger. If you did that, and especially if you did it regularly, my judgment would be is that you are unduly separating the pleasure of food from its other uses. I wonder what you think about that, Cody. To be honest, my mind goes immediately <clears throat> to sex and how the pleasure of that can be separated mm. from um, the covenantal union from procreation and things like that. Um, I know we're not discussing that, but that's just where that's just where my mind went because you see that the Lord has designed these good things in the world where many things are involved, not just one thing. And if you isolate a certain one thing and you remove it from its full wholesome context, and then you ultimatize that in the case of, like we've said, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You've got, you've got a major problem. Um, you've wrested things from having a full harmony, I think. So I, I certainly could see 
I could see that point. I mean, I, I think I do see that point. Uh, and I appreciate what you're saying. So by your analogy, gluttony, it is, is a sort of nutritional onanism. We're separating the pleasure of the food from its essential character as giving us nutrition, just as onanism or this undue spilling of seed or the wasting of human seed would separate the pleasure of intercourse from the productivity or the procreative character of intercourse. It's an analogy I've thought of often. I think it's a good one. And we should have a whole podcast about that. <laughs> it's a major issue. Yeah, that's that's another one. Uh, that whole topic. Yeah, just where my mind went. I've never I've never thought about it before. Um, but I think even though the, the not again not to derails, but even that the idea that um, there are orders of priority and the Lord has all these parts that are to work together uh, is a beautiful thing and it's part of order. It's part of peace and uh, it's for our good as well when we get these things right i would just say that that's good and useful another analogy that i think helps is the ancient roman practice some know of of eating at a banquet and then so that you could enjoy the pleasure more forcing yourself to vomit up what you ate that is putting the pleasure of food above the other benefits in a way that's very disordered I think most would see that clearly. What many don't see clearly is that junk food is a very similar principle and that the junk food is purposely constructed to put the pleasure of the experience of eating it far above the value of its nutrition. And so it's in itself a sort of temptation to gluttony. We can probably talk more about that later, but anything else you wanted to add on that, Cody? Um, I did look at Titus uh, one twelve. One of the translations, uh, the classic. I know the author. I says they're they're slow bellies, but another one says lazy gluttons. And I think when we understand man and how God's made man, and even sin, where you find one sin, you often find many others and i think that it, it it's certainly the case that often where there is gluttony you'll also find slothfulness or laziness in varying degrees yes i think that's helpful and it gets us to a point we need to move to next which is how do we determine gluttony how can we find it out in ourselves and in others and I think there needs to be an assumption stated and defended. It's fairly common sense and obvious, but many are invested in refuting it and we need to defend it. And it's that obesity is always proof of gluttony. I have heard people try to refute this. Every sound medical resource I can come across says this plainly. But you don't need a doctor to tell you that if you eat too much, you'll be fat. The image someone used once is hard to forget. A fat person says that he's just big boned or it's just genetic or he's got this disorder, slow metabolism, whatever. If you send him to a labor camp where they fed him very little food, we all know what would happen to him. He would not be fat for much longer. Another illustration when you take your dog to the vet and your dog is fat, what does the vet tell you? You're feeding the dog too much. Reduce your dog's food. Sadly, we don't have doctors that are willing to put it that clearly. And so a lot of people are confused. I think on the other side of that, we have to recognize that certain people, because of the complicating factors of disease, of disability, of family history, yes, genetics and predispositions, some and metabolism whatever that is i know it's very complicated find it harder to lose weight than others they find perhaps the pleasure of food more attractive than others we can grant all that it doesn't change the principle that obesity is necessarily a proof and i'm not 
speaking here of various body shapes within a healthy range. Everyone doesn't have to look the same. The word fat can even be used in a good sense as it is sometimes in scripture. But we all know what obesity means. It's a, it's a health condition where you are literally harming yourself and even dying because you have too much weight on you. It's the condition of a person who might as well be carrying around a 50, 60, 100 pound sack filled with rocks. And because of it, his joints are breaking. He's all tired all the time. He can't live life very well. You put it that way, you see what a clear sixth commandment violation it is. But I want to make that clear. And I assume you brothers would agree with me, but I'm glad for pushback on this point. Yeah, brother, I, I think that uh, that with your qualifications that you've added, I don't, I don't think I, it, it can be really disagreed with. Um, I do think that um, it, it, it does seem as though um, there, there can be reasons outside of your immediate control that make this a more difficult burden or temptation, but that isn't actually unique to other moral issues, right? One of the major uh, downgrades in our system of ethics, I think, is that we define uh, our duty in relation to our ability. Whereas in, in biblical ethics, right, your duty is your is your duty. And, in, in, uh, and there isn't actually a, a downgrade because, because it is harder or in some cases even impossible uh, in terms of people who are in, in bondage to these sins as part of why we need the radical work of the Holy Spirit to help us in these things. And indeed, uh, we need to be realistic about our frailty uh, while also being very, um, yeah, very straightforward with, with ourselves and with others where Jesus says, that we are better to gouge out the eye or pluck off the hands, right? Sometimes that comes down to a very physical um, center of that temptation, if, if I could put it that way. I remember just to, as I've been thinking through this more carefully, it's somewhat been informed by some of our moral thinking uh, over the mandatory vaccinations. I know that was also an issue in Canada. But um, as uh, I did some work really helping people think through and articulate why they would refuse that to their employers, what it often came down to was that there was um, a, a credible threat to their own safety and well being and their own health. And often it comes down to a, a Sixth Commandment issue. I want to just read what um, what it says in our, our Heidelberg Catechism in question 105, what does God require in the Sixth Commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, or myself, or any other. And so there's, there's a principle there that even yourself, right? That to put yourself in danger, or to harm yourself, or even put yourself in a position where you might die is, is as much a sin. So there is a there is a real um, connection with that as as well that we need to take very seriously because as we we consider the worth of our own life, right? We're talking about the image of God in us, right? It's not something you can detract you can detach from God's honor when it comes to how we treat ourselves. Now I think it's uh, while obviously what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 6 is somewhat different, um, the, the principle, I think, applies, especially for the redeemed saint, where he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. I think that this is the strongest as well as conviction that a, a Christian can have, right? It's encouraging because we know that the Lord has not left us to our own our own weakness and our own sin, that he will help us. And at the same time, the conviction that where we dishonor 
God with our bodies. It, it is a very personal situation. And it's a form of yeah, thank you, brother. You broke up there at the end, but the message was loud and clear. And I really I appreciate that plain talk about the sixth commandment. Yeah, I, I'll ask Cody a question because I think this is important too. I trust you'd agree as well that obesity is always a proof of gluttony. But does that mean that a skinny person or a just normal, normally shaped person without obesity is not able to be a glutton? No, certainly not. Um, you don't have to be obese and still be a glutton um, because your metabolism may be better uh, and you may be able to eat quite a lot uh, more than is necessary and in moderate, inordinate amount. And it not really show up in terms of your weight if just I may speak for myself, certainly that's that's more where I'm at. It's it is difficult for me to gain weight. It always has been. Um, and I do have to watch that. Sometimes I can. Um, not, if I'm not careful, yeah, there's too much eating and you're just it's just mindless. And I've had to, you know, just learn some principles there. So, yeah, you certainly you can. You can be a glutton and yet not be fat. I 100% think that's true. Yeah. And, I, and I'd add that even if you're not eating too much, um, a mere excess love for the pleasure of food, there's an Epicureanism that can love food for its pleasure, but still be very moderate in the eating of it. You know, we forget about the ancient Epicureans that it's not as if they were stuffing themselves with pleasures all the time. They understood, even though pleasure was their motivation in life, that they couldn't have as much pleasure by just giving themselves to pleasures. So they exercised a sort of self-control in order to maximize their pleasure. But it was still godless, and they were still living for their belly. There are many people like that. They think because they drink a few craft beers that they're not a drunkard. You know, they don't drink 10 Budweiser's, they'll drink two or the other. And they may not even be visibly drunk, but there's a love for the alcohol and the beer and its effects that is far beyond what God intended. And it's the same with food. You know, some housewives can benefit from watching cooking channels and such, but I do fear that many people watch food shows out of a gluttonous desire for the pleasures of food. They may not even be fat. They may not be eating too much themselves. But that heart problem is still a problem. As Christ said, if you look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. So if you look at food in lust, you've committed gluttony. Anything to add on that, Cody? No, other than I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, Searching, I suppose, to pierce beyond the act, the external act of eating and get into the inner workings of the heart and examine yourself and hold it up to God's law. Why are you doing it? To what end? These are questions we need to ask. Yes, and it is the essential question in every moral sphere. God cares first about the heart. So I think now we can get a bit deeper into application, and that's where I'd like to start. We have to deal with our hearts. Notice how many times in the passage we've read, we've heard of love and desire and appetite. We can take an excess of fat on your body as an indicator, but it's more than being an indicator of your poor physical health, it's an indicator of poor spiritual health. A spiritual health that can be bad even if you're not fat, as we've agreed. So that's where we really need to start. 
And if the problem starts there, that means the solution starts there too. And I think there's so many resources in scripture to help us with the sin of gluttony. Scripture is always pointing us to God and Christ as the source of the deepest and truest pleasures. And it's often painting those pleasures in terms of food. So Psalm 36, 8, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. A few other testimonies. Psalm 16, 11, thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Same Psalm, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Think of the parallel Psalm 23. If you consider yourself as a sheep, what wonderful food God has given. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. But then verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And Psalm 4, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. It's all plain right there, isn't it? The solution to loving food too much is to replace it with the love of God. And by grace, that's what we ought to do. Um, Benjamin, do you have anything to add to that point? Yeah, I think that uh, this, this is extremely helpful. And I think that um, it goes to show how, how far we have to go into recovering Christianity Day from antinomianism, even from churches and traditions that um, that would professedly be opposed to antinomianism, sometimes it can creep in. And it is that within the covenant of grace, Christ redeems his people to a delight in his law and into a delight in these um, these ways in which we're directed to his glory above all and with that must necessarily come a kind of uh, control over these appetites i'm thinking of proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls and the idea there is that you're utterly vulnerable where you don't have that self-government self self-control that comes through the Holy Spirit. Um, but where you do have it, you have this defense against the attacks of the devil and from your own carnal lives. I think it's, it's something to, to be much prized and delighted in. The other, um, yeah, the other thing I, I would mention in that connection is that where, where this is lacking in, in particularly a man's life, I think that it can sort of impinge on even some fifth commandment issues. So you mentioned the sixth commandment, seventh commandment, but where we spoke about the fifth commandment, it is not only those who are under authority, but those who wield authority. And to me, it's, it's, it's very important that where you would look, for example, at the qualifications of a, of a bishop in first Timothy specifically says in, in chapter one of Titus, that uh, there is temperate, they are temperate as one of their qualifications. And I don't, that's not negotiable. Uh, and like any other qualification for uh, office in the, in the ministry, there has to be an exercise of, um, of ourselves in um, using these things in a, uh, in a proper way and not an un, unexcessive way. And in the same way, we could say fathers and others in positions of leadership, whether in the state or police forces or, or what have you, it's very difficult to command respect 
and to exercise moral um, authority where people can see that there is a problem with self-control and a problem with our own appetites. And, and frankly, it can sometimes lead to the, the question, well, is there problems in other areas, right? I think this is, um, this is a powerful motive for us, for us, I think, that if, if we value being useful for the kingdom, we ought to strive with, by the Lord's grace to um, not allow this to become a problem where we become a stumbling block and become less useful for the kingdom. I'm so glad that you said that, Benjamin. It's a huge problem, and I don't know about Canada so much, but America is the land of fat preachers, and it should not be. That kind of thing should be dealt with in church before they go to seminary, should be dealt with in seminary, should be dealt with in presbyteries, sessions, but it's clearly not. And one person summarized what you were saying about moral authority in this way. A pastor I love, and he said, Michael, no one listens to a chubby preacher. That's a funny way to put it, but you remember it. It's true. It's true. Hmm. Well, so we need to love God and Christ over food and recognize many of the spiritual dimensions of this and how important it is, even and especially in regard to the gospel ministry. Thank you for that, brother. Cody, I think we need to talk, though, a bit more practically about moderation and eating, because we can't just talk about the heart. The heart comes out, and as it comes out, it needs to change the life. And so, yes, we ought to moderate our love for food by first having a love for God, but how then might we practically moderate our eating in a godly way, Cody? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Uh, I think we're speaking again to the unity of godliness, the inner and the outer man. Um, immediately, my mind thinks real easy things that you could you could uh, you could employ. That at least have been helpful for me. I know they've been helpful for others. Um, is to quit drinking soda, pop, tea, sugary drinks, desserts. Maybe you don't have to quit quit drinking it forever, but maybe just give it a try and see what happens. You may find yourself feeling better, and a decent amount of weight comes off. I know quite a few people that's been the case for them much of excess weight and feeling poorly can be linked to those very simple things. And if you don't like water, you can learn to love it. That's real simple. But um, one that's been helpful for me is to one, eat slower. And to two, wait a few minutes after you have a plate of food. You know, I'm saying this to my second born son. I say, son, eat slower. He eats so fast. He gets to a second plate in no time and he, he's eating again. And we've seen, you know, this temptation certainly in him to gluttony. We're trying to help him with it. But one of the problems is he eats so he eats so fast, he never gives time for his, his food to settle. And if he would just do that, he, you, you could feel that you're full and you don't need you don't need to eat anymore. Right? It's like my, mindless. So I'd say just be disciplined and be mindful about that. Uh, the third thing that I have done and I found quite useful both bodily and in terms of uh, spirituality is to fast. I mean, we this is something that's not talked about hardly at all either. I don't I've never heard a sermon on gluttony. I've never heard a sermon on fasting. I don't think I've, I ever have, um, which is a shame because this is a very useful discipline um, that we can use to draw near to the Lord, seek his help, um, ask him especially for things. And then also there are, there are benefits to it uh, as well to our, to our body, to our mind. So those would be some uh, first practical things I would, I would recommend. Yeah, those are useful things. Thank you. 
Benjamin, do you have anything to add on the practical question of moderation in eating? Yeah, I think that um, one of the uh, one of the things that Michael mentioned was the the principle of fasting, and maybe it it just is worthwhile thinking about um, why it is that those things would be joined together. That you have prayer and fasting. So there's that that key text in uh, in Mark's gospel, where uh, Jesus says that this kind, as in these demons, can come out by no, by none but prayer and fasting. And there's something about the spiritual discipline of denying yourself food, specifically to give yourself in order to prayer and to uh, and to reflection on the things of God. That it it seems to uh, be something that uh, that directs our um, our spiritual energy towards get harnessing our desires and channeling them towards what what is actually right and what what is important and even even that exercise does seem to have some sort of spillover in, impact into other areas in our life if it's the case that there's someone who has a problem with self-control in other areas whether it's lust or whether it's gossip or whether it's uh, something else, it's, it does seem to be that this is so is such a, a basic thing where we show our dependence upon God to deny ourselves something that we so naturally desire that it, it, it uh, leads to greater self-control and greater, greater dependence upon the Lord. Yeah, the other thing I, I've found in my, my own life is that um, even for people who find exercise to be a very a big challenge where they don't find any joy in it, they find it grueling, they, they, they've had, tried it maybe before and not been able to stick with it. I would really say that, that um, in, t- in today's world, especially where people don't, often aren't engaging in the kind of physical labor that, that they used to, I think it's very important that we find avenues where we can have moderate exercise regularly in our routine. I think that um, if you look at it from a standpoint of, well, I, I don't want to do this, I think we're looking at it all wrong. This is something that brings glory to the Lord when we steward our bodies, not that we become fixated appearance or Put a lot of photographs of ourselves showing how much weight we've lost. I don't think that's the that we're stewarding the Lord, the Lord's body that He's given to us. And as we do that, right? What I've found in my own life is that that it increases your discipline in other areas as well. And I think maybe in particular for men, right, getting that self-respect where you're denying your your bodily. Uh, desires and your determinately keeping these patterns in life. I think it's something that that could hugely be helpful, particularly when it's done with the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting. Thank you for that. Yes, I agree. We've spoken now of exercise as well. I would just add that people should mistake exercise for being primarily beneficial because it burns calories. It's usually not as satisfying as people think. You can go on a two-mile run and it'd be very difficult and then drink a Coke and all your calories are back. And exercise actually tends to make you hungrier, so it can backfire. But all the benefits that Benjamin just spoke of exercise are very good. And that is not a small thing, the self-control that it teaches that applies as well to eating. And if it's devoted as with a heart that loves God and a desire to grow in the grace of self-control, then the Lord will bless it. And exercise is also good as you're losing weight for maintaining uh, a good tone and strength to your body as well. Many other good benefits. Anything, Cody, to add about food or exercise? Uh, I would just say, you know, don't be falsely shamed for pursuing martial virtue. I know that I've seen elements of that in the past year or so, 
even some dust ups online concerning it. I think it's it's good to to pursue martial virtue and, and strength, especially for men. Um, mm. So that's just one thing I would I would say. Just a warning on the other side is if you're spending a lot of time in the mirror, uh, preening and all that, maybe uh, dial it back. You might be coming toward effeminacy there. But otherwise, I think it's it's great. We need to, uh, it's, it's part of the sixth commandment, I would even argue, is that we are to have a due uh, bodily exertion. So, Yes, I agree. And the more I've done it, the more I've seen the benefits. I'm thankful for some moderate exercise in my life. That's a, it's a fairly new thing for me, and the benefits have been evident, and I'm thankful. I would press it, though, because I know this is an objection in some people's minds. One motivation people have in exercising is they want to look good. That's also a motivation in losing weight. Is that a good motivation for a Christian to have, to look good? Yeah. <laughs> That's I, a, I, would, I would, yeah, you go, you go first, Michael, or uh, Cody, sorry. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll go first. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, obviously, the Lord has created the world uh, with the category of beauty, and that's good. I would say there is a order which is good to pursue in appearance. For example, we see a house that's run down, has not had any maintenance. That can produce a certain feeling in us. And I think that that's natural and good. We're not, we don't find it attractive. On the flip side, if we see, you know, beautiful architecture, we are attracted to that. And I just think that's how the Lord has made the world. So I suppose I would split it the same way we did, perhaps with pleasure, that there is an ordinate pursuit of a comely and orderly appearance but you can obviously take that too far and that's part of what i was trying to say with men spending a lot of time in the mirror you know preening themselves you know you you can become effeminate with some of these things i i have i have seen it um that's where i think some of the young men maybe aren't always hearing these critiques that the older fellows are giving or at least not finding the good that is there um, so that's, that's how I would initially answer it. Is that clear? I, I think so. But do you have something to add, Benjamin? No, I'm glad you, you, you put that, Cody. I think that, that that it is a very balanced presentation. I think we need to understand that right now in culture, right, um, there, there seems to have been a, a really dramatic lowering of standards when it comes to just basic hygiene, basic appearance, basic professionalism, and uh, I don't, th I don't think that is godly. I don't think that is godly, and um, I think that um, always there is the sin of pride. Always there is the sin of immodesty, which doesn't necessarily mean only that you're showing off your your body in an inappropriate way. It can be that you want to to make yourself the center of attention. But I think observing proper and godly standards of decorum and decency, also with your own appearance, it's precisely so you don't draw attention to yourself. Obviously, in the context of uh, God's covenant marriage, it's good that you be attractive to your to your husband or to your wife. But, but um, I think that that is also something that can be, be neglected. I think it's, it's a wonderful and a godly thing where people take care of themselves for that reason as well. But also I think that if, if you just look at more broadly in our culture, right? Um, if you compare pictures of crowds from early in the 20th century to today, people would sort of scratch their heads and say, what happened? Why, why was there such a dramatic infantilization of people's appearances and obviously um, yeah, deterioration in their health and, and other things? I appreciate that, Benjamin, and I agree completely. I would just add two quick things. One is we ought to celebrate what God celebrates. And I want to remind you that he celebrates beauty 
in David, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. This is David. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. This is not a criticism. This is a good thing in its place. But in its place, we celebrate it as a good thing and it is worth pursuing to look good. I don't think Christians should be ashamed of that if it's in its place. So good. The other thing was, um, just as a practical help, there are a lot of good people you can follow. But I do find with men's things, it so easily tends to an effeminate love for pleasure and also into a sexual license. It's hard to know who to follow. Um, one account that I've been helped by on Twitter is well-built style. And if you heard of that, that's um, they have just good common sense advice to men about how to dress. And they talk about how the foundation of looking good as a man is having a, a well-built frame, not as a bodybuilder, but just lean and muscular. And so that might be an encouragement to some men there. And I'm sure godly ladies could give help on the female side, but we can't. So I would add though, something I thought of earlier, that a great help in moderate eating is having a wife who's a good homemaker who can cook well, who herself eats moderately and has a good sense of portion control. Because then if she's just giving you your food and you eat and are content with what she gives you, you're, you're going to do pretty well. And that that's a foundation of my health that sometimes I take for granted, but I shouldn't. It really is a blessing here in this home. Good. All right. Let's do one more thing before we're done. Because there is a duty we haven't talked about, and it's how we relate to other people. How do you relate to the friend who is evidently a glutton? You can see it on his face. You can see it in his belly. You're not even sure he recognizes it. What should you do? Well, the first thing I'd say is what not to do. What's not to do is to remain silent. We've talked about how serious this sin is. And I want you to think about what people who have 50, 100 extra pounds, every time they eat, they are poisoning themselves. They are committing suicide. It's not too strong to say this is a sixth commandment issue. They may not be jumping off a bridge, but very slowly they're arriving at the same conclusion by abusing food. And in love for our friends, we need to say something. We need to talk to the gluttons in our life. Talk, of course, first about the spiritual reality of the sin, and about their need to repent and love God and Christ and not food but also talk to them about food and about their eating and offer as appropriate practical tips to help, knowing that's not the first thing you need to deal with the heart. But I would counsel as well that when the fear comes and you think, well, he's not going to say something, he's not going to like it, or we're not going to be friends anymore, that's not necessarily true. Often Satan tempts us to that fear. And that fear also becomes an excuse not simply not to love our brother by doing this duty toward him. And in my own experience, talking to people about this very thing and other sins, often people are grateful. They're grateful someone says something. They themselves might even have been thinking about it. And it's that word of loving admonition that will finally get them in gear to start fixing the problem. So don't withhold that from your brethren anything you brothers would like to add to that or to any other thing we've said tonight i'll just bolster your point which is excellent proverbs 27 6 faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful and leviticus nineteen seventeen: thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. And I, I, you said this in your prayer before we began. Um, of whom shall we be afraid? Are we going to be afraid of, even of our, our brother? Are we going to fear a brother in Christ more than we fear God? Um, no, we can't do that. And we need to speak up. Pray and ask the Lord for courage. If we see this. 
and trust that it's one of the means the Lord can use. That's good. Benjamin, do you have anything to add, brother? Yeah, what you said is very, very helpful, brother. And um, I think that people can tell when things come from a place of love as well. Um, I think that um, where, uh, where we love someone, we can find a way of expressing ourselves and, and uh, a occasion of expressing ourselves that will communicate the kind of respect and gentleness and, and concern which the situation calls for. And I think if sometimes we tell ourselves we can't, we can't uh, measure up to that, I think that if we were to consider it and, and pray about it carefully, I think that the Lord would give us the wisdom to do just that. So thank you for what you said. Yes, and I'd add one more thing, that as with any other sin, commit to people for the long term. You can't just talk to someone and his sins are going to be fixed the next day. That's true in any sin, perhaps especially in this one, especially when you consider the effects of gluttony, which perhaps of the heart issues solved may still take a long time to deal with. Patience, love for your brethren, and a willingness to follow up, I think is important. And that would apply to many other areas as well. Well, my brothers, this has been profitable to me, and I hope to you, and I hope to many of our listeners and may the Lord encourage all who have heard this to labor, to be done with this sin, and most of all, to find everlasting pleasure at the right hand of God. May he bless you.